This is the Read to Lead podcast, episode 477. A lot of meetings is a symptom of an organization that has lost control of its future because what they're trying to do is resurrect the managerial hierarchy in a remote way, distributed way, without embracing what is possible. It's become readily apparent to many of us that work is quite simply no longer working. Exacerbated by a pandemic-driven rush toward remote work and economic instability resulting in a lot of layoffs, many of us are feeling less motivated and more creatively stifled than ever. And instead of responding in an effective way, bosses are continuing to rely on outdated management paradigms that are unable to solve the unique problems of our times. Hi, I'm Jeff Brown, and this is the Read to Lead podcast, the podcast that is dedicated to your personal and professional growth, where I believe that if you want to achieve true success in business and in life, that intentional and consistent reading is a must. It's safe to say that at least one of the reasons this podcast exists is due to our guest. He's visiting us for the third time over the last 10 years. That person is none other than Seth Godin. He's written a brand new book that releases today called The Song of Significance, a new manifesto for teams. I'll ask Seth what making work more significant looks like and why it matters. I'll ask him about the emphasis on vocational skills by many organizations versus soft skills and the too little respect we give soft skills oftentimes. We'll talk about our predominant meeting culture, especially post-pandemic and what meetings look like inside a significant organization, and much more, including a number of questions toward the end of our conversation sent in by you. You know, many of those questions were submitted by Read to Lead Plus members, a premium tier inside the Read to Lead community that for just nine bucks a month gets you access to expert-led webinars every month, Ask Me Anything sessions from yours truly, bi-monthly workshops, challenges, networking, other exclusive content. We even feature one of our members, every single month. All that, book summaries each week and more. Again, just nine bucks a month. I was told by many that it should be 49 a month or 79 a month or 99 a month. It's just nine bucks a month. Maybe I'm crazy, but that's all it's going to set you back. I think you'll find it well worth it. Again, expert-led webinars, AMAs, workshops, challenges, networking, other exclusive content, like the chance to ask Seth Godin questions. If you want to find out more about it, just go to this website. It's jeffbrown.me. That's jeffbrown.me. Seth Godin is the author of 21 international best-selling books that have changed the way people think about work. His books have been translated into 38 languages. He writes one of the most popular marketing blogs in the world, and two of his TED Talks are among the most popular of all time. He is founder of the Alt-MBA, the social media pioneer Squidoo, and Yo-Yo Dine, one of the first internet companies. His new book, his 21st, is called The Song of Significance, a new manifesto for teams. Well, welcome back for the third time now to the Read to Lead podcast. I thought it was a treat the first time. I'm not sure what to do with myself now that we're <laughs> number three. Appreciate you being here. We're making a habit of it. <laughs> Most people know who listen to this show, and I've, I've told you this story before. About 20 years ago, my love for reading was reignited with, with a book called Purple Cow that led to the show and, and a book and, and more. About a dozen years before that, I was introduced to my first nonfiction book written by a guy named Zig Ziglar. And uh, sadly, I was too immature at that time to appreciate <laughs> Zig's work. 
uh, only a, a few years later would I come to truly appreciate not only his books, but his uh, motivational uh, cassettes and whatnot. And they had a huge impact on me. And his work has had an impact on you. And, and if you're willing to share, I'd love to, to hear how some of Zig's work impacted your formidable years. Oh, I wouldn't be here if it weren't for the tapes. I spent seven years on the verge of bankruptcy, a week or two away from missing payroll, mm. rejected all the time. Uh, the first year, 800 rejections. The thing about getting a book rejected in the old days is they would put a stamp on a letter, mail it to your home, and it would basically say, we read your proposal. We hate you. We don't want to work with you. And I'd get two or three of those a day. Mm. And the tapes were a regular companion. And I would write him a letter every nine months or so after seeing him in person or reading a new book. He always wrote back. Mm. And then I got to publish The Goals Planner and share the stage with him once. And I've been friends with his son for a long time. Mm. Uh, to see the pattern that he created, it enabled me to realize that you could do this for a living and to do it with generosity. He was a good man. I miss him. Mm. I have that goals planner, by the way. I picked that up a few years ago. Appreciate that. Uh, now to the book, The Song of Significance. You mentioned three kinds of, of songs in the book, The Song of Increase, which I think you say is an experience that many of us are living through right now, uh, The Song of Safety, and of course, the book's title, The Song of Significance. If you would describe uh, each each one of these three and what they mean. Sure. Um, I would say, well, I'll just tell it from the beginning. Jacqueline Freeman named The Song of Increase. It's what happens to a feral bee colony at the end of a long winter. Not always, but only if they've got just enough resources. The purpose of honey in a hive is not to make the beekeeper happy. The <laughs> honey exists to create reserves for the winter. They make it through the winter. They It's a complicated story that I tell in the book, but basically mm -hmm. they will swarm. And in less than 10 minutes, more than 12,000 bees will leave the hive, not sure where they're going, and fly off with the queen, leaving behind all the baby bees and all the honey. And this leap into the future is magnificent to behold. I think right now, many of us are singing the song of safety, which is what I have named what happens after the bees mm. leave the hive and they form a tight ball. They have to maintain a body temperature of 98 degrees. And they only have three days from the time they leave to find a new place to live. And during those three days, they're doing two things. One, they're looking, setting out scouts to try to find a new home. And they're also basically hiding out, shivering, and trying to survive. And the pandemic and lots of other things, the prevalence of media trying to create panic for profit has caused so many of us to sing the song of safety and to hunker down and to hide. Mm. And bees are not people and people are not bees. So I think what we really yearn for is the song of significance. And this is the best job we ever had. This is that moment when we realize we are capable of something important, when we would be missed if we were gone, when we are doing something we are eager to put our name on. And this significance is lacking because of the longstanding regime of the industrialists and because of our inherent fear. And what I wanted to do in this book is wake people up a little bit and realize we don't get tomorrow over again. So we might as well set up our lives so that tomorrow's worth it. You mentioned the pandemic and other disruptions. How, in your estimation, has what companies need shifted in, in recent years? So the interesting thing about this is we've always needed significance, but we also needed to make a living and make a profit. <laughs> right. And so we made a deal 
a long time ago that we would show up at the factory, show up at the mines, do what we were told because that's how we got fed. But the industrial era is ending. It's ending because mediocre stuff can get done by a computer now. It can get done by an automated factory now. It can get done by very few people now. So if all you do is make mediocre stuff, I got an AI that can do your job. (laughs) So what's left is to make decisions. And making decisions, coming up with answers to questions that haven't been asked yet, that work requires significance. It requires a different mindset. And so the people who are trying to scale their way to the bottom are ending up at the bottom. And we're seeing billionaires in public destroying organizations by bullying people and trying to cut costs. You can't shrink your way to greatness, as Tom Peters used to say. How do you, Seth, view management versus leadership? And and how can we transition from the the former to the latter? You know, a great question. We use those two words interchangeably, and that's Mm. our loss. Management is based on hierarchy. And if you have authority, you have power and you get to tell people what to do. We need managers to make the assembly line work. It's not a moral failing. It is critical. You can't have a fast food restaurant without a manager or no one will show up for their shift on time. But that doesn't mean you're a leader. Leaders are doing something that's voluntary, which is exploring the liminal space between here and there, Mm. understanding what could be. And the people who follow a leader are doing it voluntarily. And so- If you say, you must follow me, you're a manager. If you say, I'm going over there, who wants to come? You're a leader. And some managers lead and some leaders manage, but they're not related. I lead a cohort called Note Making Mastery. And we make a distinction between note making versus note taking. And the idea of of distilling down what you learn into into your own thoughts and ideas and and insights and the importance of being selective, selectively ignorant, and that you're bombarded with so much all the time. And those little pieces and parts over time create a bigger, greater thing. And oftentimes, the tendency is to create that bigger, better thing and then go, ta-da, look at what I did, and then get feedback. (laughs) Right. But I'm a big proponent of taking those building blocks blocks along the way, those baby steps and and getting and showing your work, as you say, getting feedback as as you go. But oftentimes when I push people to consider that, they say, well, I already get enough criticism as it is. You're asking me to open myself up for more. What would you say to someone who argues that they, they get enough as it is? Well, the first thing I would say is I love the dichotomy between note making and note taking. And I hope you will write a book about it. Um, I, when I was in college, Ralph Nader came to speak on campus. I don't remember a word he said except for two things. One was bizarre, which is he started going on a rant about deodorant. But the second one was he said, what's the point of taking notes if all you're doing is writing down stuff you're going to forget later? Mm. And that had a big impact on me. I stopped taking notes after that. I said, I'm going to be present and I'm going to figure out what I need from this and listen as opposed to just take dictation. Mm. And the idea of note making, I love that. you, you highlighted something important about criticism. If you believe that criticism is personal, well, then of course you're exhausted by it. And of course you want nothing to do with it. I wouldn't either. That's why I don't read any of my reviews on Amazon, one star or five star. I've already written the book. I can't write it again. And the people who are criticizing it aren't telling me anything about my work. They're telling me something about them. Doesn't do anybody any good. On the other hand, advice, useful advice from non-anonymous people who care about where you're going, 
most of us are open to that. If you pull over when you're lost before the world of GPS and you ask someone for directions, that's not criticism. That's advice on how to get to Poughkeepsie. That's what you needed. And so inside the, the Carbon Almanac, and which I capture in the book, page 19 thinking, and right next to it, criticize the work, never criticize the worker. That when a locksmith shows up, they don't take it personally when the first master key they try doesn't open the door. <laughs> it's useful advice as to which key will work. So I, when I am writing something, don't share my drafts with very many people mm. because they're not professionals at giving useful advice. They instead are much more likely to want to protect their friend and say, oh, no, don't do that. You're going too far. You're going to get in trouble. That doesn't help, right? Mm. So show your work is the idea that, yeah, if it works for you to get advice as you're developing something to show your work, that's great. But what show your work means is don't say, take my word for it. It says, here's how I got to where I got. Here's what came before. I've done the reading. I'm not just showing up and making up things that the world is flat and the moon is made out of cheese. Because if I'm going to say those things, I better prove it. Show your work. And so when I combine show your work with get advice, we end up with better work. To your point about Amazon reviews, I remember you once telling me that no one ever read their their one-star reviews and then said to themselves, gee, now I'm a better author. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you, you say that measurable skills without productive attitudes um, aren't worth much. And, and, and yet organizations, I think, spend a lot of time measuring vocational skills because they can, as you say. What, what are your feelings on, on soft skills and, and the too little respect that, that we tend to give them? Well, I need to rant for a minute about false proxies because I think false proxies are the cause of so much pain in our lives. Mm. We need proxies because you're not allowed to taste the ketchup in the store. You have to buy the ketchup first. So the label on the ketchup is a proxy. Mm. The cover on a book is a proxy. We judge books by their cover all the time. What other thing can we judge a book by? Because <laughs> we can't read the book before we buy it. So sometimes proxies are really useful, right? If Nicolas Cage is in a movie, that's not a useful proxy because there's a 50% chance it's a bad movie and a 50% <laughs> chance it's a good movie. That's not a good way to judge it. Mm. On the other hand, there are plenty of people who have made movies that you like where knowing that they're in it is a proxy for this is probably worth seeing. So in an industrial setting, the mindset of the proxy we need, if we need someone to work in the warehouse and haul heavy boxes, we should hire people who can haul heavy boxes. That's pretty clear. But how do we decide who should be in the front office, who should be leading customer service, who should be doing most of the jobs that people who are listening to this get to do? Well, the false proxies that we settled on 50 years ago are, do you look like me? Are you from the same social class? Are you from the same cast? Did you go to a famous college? Are there typos on your resume? All of these things, which are not only not helpful, they are detrimental to our culture and to society. And they cost us a fortune because the lesson of Moneyball is if you can find accurate proxies, you get a discount on the amazing people you're able to hire because they have been ignored because mm. they don't match the false proxies. All of which is a warm up to say that easily measured vocational skills are a false proxy for most jobs that somebody who can type really fast or is really tall or well-spoken in a Zoom call, these things 
are not accurate, useful proxies for will they get the job done. Now, it's easy to listen to this and say, well, I wouldn't fall for that. But I would point out that the height of the U.S. president elected has been going up on average of our republic mm. because we are confused into believing that height has something to do with whether or not you're going to be good <laughs> at that job. So what does matter? What matters is empathy, loyalty, honesty, resilience, the ability to give and get feedback, patience, sitting with big ideas, creativity, all of which are really hard to measure. But mm. we can now show our previous work so much easier than before. You don't need a resume. You need a body of work. Mm. Show me your commits to GitHub. Show me what the people who have worked with you before say about you. Show me the work you have shipped. Let me listen to your last 20 episodes of your podcast. Mm. That will tell me whether I should hire you to be doing similar work with my team. And yet we're still stuck. And the last part of my rant, because I care a lot about this one. <laughs> if you've ever had Ben and Jerry's brownie ice cream, they even have a good uh, vegetarian version, non-dairy. Um, the brownies were made four miles from my home mm. at the Grayston Bakery on the Hudson River in Yonkers, New York. And Grayston is an offshoot of a, a spiritual movement that Bernie Glassman started. And their policy is called open hiring. And the way it works is there's a list. Anyone can be on the list. You can be formally incarcerated. You can have had drug problems in the past. Anyone can be on the list. And when a job opens up, the next person gets it. And when you get that job, no interview of any kind. When you get that job, you've got several weeks of training. If you don't show up on time, if you can't listen and do the soft skills, you can't stay. But if you can do the work, you can stay for as long as you can do the work. Yeah. It turns out that people, and Body Shop does it now uh, around the world, People who are hired through open hiring have a turnover rate that's less than half of typical jobs mm. and a productivity rate that ranges from 10 to 40% higher over the long haul. Mm. And yet, almost no organization has embraced open hiring. And the reason is because hiring managers like to feel like they have control. They like to feel that they have good taste, that they have some sort of judgment about these proxies mm. when they don't. And- I use this as partly because I think open hiring is a great idea and partly because I want to help people see how much this reliance on hard measured skills and false proxies is getting in their way. Mm. Seth, you mentioned empathy with regard to significant work. You also say in the book that it requires a significant work, requires us to develop more empathy than we're comfortable with. What, what does that mean? Okay. So the model of the industrialist is we have a factory, it makes stuff. If you want to buy it, here it is. And if we can make whatever we make cheaper, Henry Ford was the pioneer of this, mm -hmm. you're probably going to buy more than our competitors. Figure out how to make a standard product, make it cheaper, make it faster. It made us all rich. Mm -hmm. But the thing about significant work is significant work always creates change. If you're not making a change, you feel like a cog in the system. Mm -hmm. And marketers in particular, if you're not making a change, why are you here? Mm. Why are you bothering anybody? The goal of our work is to make a change happen. Maybe change the product, maybe change the customer, maybe change our market share. But if you are going to make a change happen, you have to involve other people who will voluntarily engage with you. They will only do that if it's good for them. 
So the empathy that's required is to realize we are not doing this for us. We're doing it for them. We have to imagine what they want because they're not going to do it because we asked them to. They're going to do it because we saw the world through their eyes. Mm. You speak a bit in the book about our predominant meeting culture. Of course, uh, <laughs> the pandemic impacted that greatly. Uh, uh, some folks find themselves in Zoom meetings all day long. Contrast, say, our predominant meeting culture with what meetings might look like inside a significant organization. So let's be really clear. A conversation is different than a meeting. Mm-hmm. A conversation is when two or three people are actually taking turns talking and listening with the goal of learning something and changing something. I am in favor of conversations. They are critical. What is a meeting look like now? A meeting generally is a boss taking attendance to make sure you're not picking up your dry cleaning. <laughs> And if you are in meetings all day long, please explain to me why they could not be replaced by memos, mm. asynchronous video essays, or things like Slack or Discourse. So we built the Carbon Almanac with 300 volunteers in 40 countries in five months. We made no significant errors. We wrote a 97,000 word book, winning awards translated into multiple languages, and we did not have one meeting, not one, <laughs> because... I didn't write it, but I organized it. If I had something to say, I recorded myself and said, watch this when you want. If someone needed to have a conversation with me, I had conversations all day, every day, constant conversation. If we needed to have multiple people involved in a thread, we built a thread because an asynchronous thread where lots of people can talk at the same time and you can see what came before is so much more powerful Mm. than the status roles, misogyny, and bullying that goes on and who gets to talk next in a meeting setting. So I think a lot of meetings is a symptom of an organization that has lost control of its future because what they're trying to do is resurrect the managerial hierarchy in a remote way, distributed way, without embracing Mm. what is possible. And in the book, I talk about automatic. They power 40% of the internet. And Matt has 2,000 employees. They do not have an office. They do not use email. And when you think about how could that be possible at the productivity level they have, it's simple. They have a reading and writing culture that they basically use WordPress internally. Mm. And someone says what they want to do. And someone comments on it and back and forth and back and forth. And there it is all in a thread. And that requires a lot of responsibility and a lot of advice giving. And it doesn't respond very well to status role. Seth, you've, you've obviously hit on some of these already, but I want to give you a chance to share some more of what you call these transcendent foundational principles that help us to create the sort of organization that attracts and, and amplifies and challenges people who want to make a difference. What are, what are some of those you could, you could share that we haven't already touched on? Well, one of the things I admire so much about you and your podcast is that you understand how much of a benefit a book can be to somebody who works with ideas. Mm. And as someone who makes books, that means a lot to me. But Mm. why do I even bother making a book? Why not just write a blog post? Because I'll reach 10 times more people with a blog post. And the reason is a book exists as a totem, as a stake in the ground, and as a source of conversation. That the reason I wrote this book is so that we would talk about it, so that you could buy five copies and give four away and say to the people you work with, we are going to talk about these commitments. The commitments we are going to make to each other 
so that we can create the conditions for the next cycle of where our world is going. Because if you don't create the conditions, it's it's funny, uh, Harvard Business School invited me to do an online talk. And they said, what's it about? Because they're, they're all very fussy about stuff like that. And I <laughs> gave them a paragraph or two, and they rewrote it and said not that I was going to talk about how big organizations can create significant culture, but they rewrote it to how you can make your employees think they're significant. Oh. <laughs> because they so desperately want to maintain mm. the false security and sense of dominance that comes from the industrial mindset. Mm. We need to talk about the fact that we're going to criticize the work, not the worker, that turnover is okay because enrollment is critical. If you don't want to go where we're going, I can't make you. Mm. And this idea that you are enrolled in the journey means I don't have to take attendance. I don't have to check how many keystrokes you're taking every minute. That we don't need a surveillance system when everybody is aligned in the mission. And getting really clear about let's get real or let's not play Mm. is super important but it's not going to happen if we don't talk about it. One of the things you do oftentimes at the end of the Akimbo podcast is, is take questions uh, from listeners. And I've, I've crowdsourced a few uh, from my listeners. Oh, and, that's great. And from my tribe that I, that I want to run through in the time we have left. Before I do that, though, I want to give you a chance to share anything from the song of significance that I, that I haven't asked about, maybe that you wished I would have. Well, as always, you went right to the right spots. I think, I think that uh, in today's TLDR, I'm in a hurry, checklist world. You can't just show up with an endless litany in a book because people Mm. just don't have the patience. So this book, like many of my books, veers left and right in this course of two or three pages, boom, ba-da, boom, ba-da, boom. Mm. And some of it's going to land and some of it isn't. But here's what I believe. I believe that the world is weird and it's getting weirder. This is as normal as it's ever going to be for the rest of our lives is today. And we can either have agency and do something about it, or we can be victims. And this is my most important and most personal book, because I think it's the moment when we can define what's important. And if we don't do that, well, then that's on us. Mm, well said. I mentioned a note-making mastery earlier. One of the things I try to teach people in this cohort is this idea of selective ignorance. With everything that comes at you, you've got to be very picky about what you decide to learn and not to learn. And Ashley Cirilli, who was a part of one of our cohorts, asks, how do you determine what to learn next? With so many amazing resources and authors, Mm -hmm. how do you decide what's worth your time and effort? They're a great question. I indulge my uh, short attention span by not being particularly disciplined in the answer to that question, but I am very disciplined about something that sits right next to it, which is we all understand that there are certain things that we can choose to commit to that don't last five minutes. Mm. Like, don't adopt a puppy if you're only going to spend 10 minutes with it. That's <laughs> not how it works. A puppy is a very big commitment. Mm. You know what else is a big commitment? Twitter, LinkedIn, <laughs> Facebook. So I saw Twitter early in the whole thing, right after they were in Austin, when there was probably 5,000 users. Mm. And I realized that I could probably be good at Twitter. But I also realized that to do that, I'd have to be less good at something else because it was like a puppy. (laughs) And too many people in our lives have adopted puppies that don't make them happy. Mm. And so I've been really disciplined about that, right? I don't binge watch TV. 
I don't use Twitter or Facebook or Instagram or the rest of them mm. because now I have time to goof around for an hour and a half with AI until it's boring to me and then I won't do it anymore. But I'm not too busy to do that now because I made some big decisions before. Mm. You mentioned LinkedIn. Uh, one of the questions that came in is from my friend, Dan Horowitz, who leads a sales team over at LinkedIn. And he happened to listen to a Tim Ferriss interview recently with Derek Sivers and asked Derek about his mentors. And, and Derek mentioned three, one of them was you. Uh, but he says he rarely speaks to them. Instead, he writes out a description of the problem he's facing. He summarizes it, his thoughts and actions. He then tries to predict what his mentors would say. And then he internalizes and addresses the points and oftentimes recognizes he's figured it out. He doesn't actually need to go to the mentor after all. Dan's question is about your thoughts on, on Derek's approach. Should we have real mentors that we actually talk to or is the real work in just going through the process? I so admire Derek. I wish mm. I could spend more time with him. He's not allowed in the States very often. Um, I wrote a blog post years ago that probably inspired his answer, which is called Mentors and Heroes. And the thing is that the mentor relationship is inherently asymmetrical. It doesn't scale. And it always leads to disappointment one way or the other. Mm. Either the mentor thinks that they've been let down or the, or the person thinks their mentor didn't step up. It's a form of therapy. There's, it's too complicated. I have no formal mentor relationships for all of those reasons. Mm. Heroes, on the other hand, are free. You can have heroes who are dead. And in fact, <laughs> dead heroes are better because they don't end up disappointing you later. And so if you say to yourself, what would Muhammad Ali do today, right? What would the Mahatma do in this situation? Because they're iconic, you can pretty much guess. Mm. And it takes more effort than having the great one get on the phone with you. But it's actually way more effective because I know I would let Derek down if he called me every day. <laughs> but if he can look at my body of work and say, Based on what Seth is doing here, I'm imagining this. He's going to be right 85% of the time if I'm at all consistent. So I'm in favor of getting yourself a cognitive behavioral therapist, figuring out how to get yourself a coach even, but you don't need a mentor and you're not going to find one you deserve. Mm -hmm. Heroes are easy to find. Go find some of those. You can go to ChatGPT and say, hey, you're Seth Godin. How, how, how would you respond to this problem? Right. <laughs> well, a couple more. Samuel uh, Bockert asks a question I've heard you address before. Uh, he references the fact that you write a blog post every day, and he makes the assumption that that's a streak that's easy to maintain now because you don't want to break the chain. But he asks, uh, what motivated you to start publishing every day and to keep going? And secondarily, do you ever have writer's block? <laughs> Okay. Well, the second one's super easy. Yeah. Uh, there's no such thing as writer's block. People who have writer's block don't have writer's block. They're just afraid of bad writing. Because mm. unless you have a physical disability that is keeping you from speaking or using a pen or a keyboard, you can do bad writing. You're just saying, I've thought about the writing I'm about to do, and I'm not willing to write it down because I'm afraid. And what Isaac Asimov taught me is that the answer to writer's block is more writing. And if you do enough bad writing, some good writing will slip through. It can't help it. And so, no, you don't get writer's block. I write two or three or four blog posts for every one that people see. And so I just, the bad ones go away. As for how I stuck with it, the first year I probably had 100 readers. Uh, I've never written my blog to reach a large audience. I have intentionally made my blog reach a smaller audience over the last five or 10 years mm. by refusing to do all the stuff that you have to do to hype up to a bigger audience. Because 
I write my blog so that today I will think about what I want to say tomorrow because it makes me better. And if there's a generous byproduct of that, that's fantastic. Mm. But this act of committing to a point of view is not that different than the act of going to the gym, right? None of us are going to be Olympic athletes, and yet you still use the treadmill because there's some benefit to you of working out. Well, this is a Mm. form of working out for me, a commitment to being on the hook. And fish should not be on the hook, but people should. You were kind enough to give me some some feedback on a book I wrote a couple of years ago and suggest that uh, my co-author and I address why more people don't read. And one of the things you said was people don't read because if a book is going to help you get somewhere you've been unable to get to on your own, it means changing your mind about something, which makes us uncomfortable. <laughs> the other thing, by the way, was we don't want to learn because learning means admitting we don't know something which we're taught to avoid, right? Jerry Granham wants to know, over the last couple of years, what have you changed your mind about, if anything? Um, I changed my mind three or four different times about the climate. Mm. Uh, I worked on the Carbon Almanac because I felt stupid, and I figured if I felt stupid, other people did too. Mm. And I learned a lot. At the beginning, it was extraordinarily depressing. The, the, you know, the core team of 60 or 90 of us were just bereft. But after a few weeks, we realized we were doing something. And the act of taking action, however small, is, is helped us feel at least a little better. I have changed my mind. I was one of the early techno-optimist internet cheerleaders because I believed if everybody had a microphone, we would end up with a really interesting, juicy, and positive world. And what I failed to account for is that there is a business model in amplifying trolls. <laughs> and there aren't more trolls in the world. They're just louder than they were when I was 30. Mm. And I didn't see that at all. Um, and one of the side effects of that is that public health, which is a miracle, a miracle, people don't understand. New York City was going to have to shut down more mm. than once in the last 200 years because of public health crises. Mm. That. There was almost a smallpox outbreak that could have killed millions of people in 1947, that there was no way for New York City to get any bigger in the 1800s because the Hudson River was fouled by sewage and there was no fresh water. It's easy to look at public health successes and imagine that they are inevitable. Mm. And I think uh, the extraordinary heroic work of the people who saved millions of lives during COVID has been underappreciated. And one thing that I changed my mind about was taking public health for granted. Um, I think that civilization is a great thing. I'm in favor of it. And we don't value it maybe as much as we should. Mm, Great answer. Last question, Seth. Chris Abbey uh, asks for advice for professionals in what he refers to as traditionally non-creative fields. He references IT and technology and security, but who are interested in bringing a a creative process to their work. His question is, how can we honor and leverage the creative process to bring something new and innovative to those fields? You know, the recently retired Tom Peters used to say, it's only a commodity if you think it is. Mm. And that's a brilliant way to say it, that Nucor Steel revolutionized the steel business by refusing to say steel as a commodity. And the people who work in the fields you're talking about are only non-creative if they say they are. Mm. Creativity is simply the act of solving a problem when there are boundaries. That's all it is. It is not painting. It is not talent. I don't have talent. 
What I have is the ability, the desire to see boundaries, to describe a problem, and then to say things out loud that might not work. And we have seen what Bruce Schneier has done in computer security. We have seen, you know, name whatever field you want, significant breakthroughs that are the act of creativity by people who are willing to go solve interesting problems. And I'll wrap us up with the story of Henry Poydar, who was my uh, professor when I studied engineering at Tufts. And there was a giant skyscraper in in Boston. I think it was the John Hancock building. I'm not sure. We're talking about like 90 stories tall. Mm. And they built this thing at great expense. And they discovered that the drywall was having horrible brown stains on it as if some, you know, Stephen King had had orchestrated the whole thing. <laughs> and they would put stain killer on it and the brown stains would pop right back. And this is multiplied by an entire office building that's huge. So they call up Henry Poydar, who's a professor of creative engineering at Tufts. And they say, can we hire you to consult? And he comes and he looks at the building and he says, oh, I think I might be able to solve this problem. $25,000. If it doesn't work, you don't have to pay me. And they're like, okay, well, how long is it going to take? And he says, well, first let's sign this napkin that that's the deal. And they say, okay. And he reaches into his pocket, pulls out an index card and write down the name of something. And he hands it to them and he says, that'll solve your problem. $25,000. <laughs> and they're like, but it only took you 10 seconds. He said, well, it didn't take me 10 seconds. It took me 20 years of creative problem solving to realize that this chemical gets rid of those brown stains. $25,000, please. <laughs> and that was creative, right? It was a creative mm. way to get paid. And it was a creative way to solve the problem that all these people who said they were experts couldn't do because they hadn't done the reading, hadn't shown their work, hadn't been willing to do things that wouldn't work in service of finding the solution. Mm. And all of us are capable of having a day like Henry Poydar had. And that is what I think of as significant. Mm. The book, again, is The Song of Significance, a new manifesto for teams. I would buy five and give away four. If you lead a team, buy one for everybody on the team. Seth, as always, uh, thank you so much for your time and for your generosity. What a treat. Keep making a ruckus. It matters, Jeff. Thank you. You know, we talked about mentors earlier, Seth and I, and spending enough time with someone's work to be able to kind of predict how they're going to answer. You know, Seth's gone a step further. If you go to his website, I'll put a link in the show notes. You can ask an AI trained on Seth's writing any question about things that Seth has written about. Pretty cool. Ask an AI trained on Seth's writing over the last decade plus. Again, I'll put a link to that page on his website at the show notes page for this episode. You'll find that in the other resources we talked about at readtoleadpodcast.com slash 477 for episode 477. That's readtoleadpodcast.com slash 477. There you'll also find a link to the Read to Lead community website. Get access to monthly expert-led webinars, monthly Ask Me Anything sessions, workshops, challenges, networking, book summaries, the chance to ask some of my guests questions, other exclusive content. It's all just nine bucks a month. You'll find it at jeffbrown.me. In the coming weeks, we'll be talking with author Heather Penny, who's written a book called The Life You're Made For, Finding Clarity, Confidence, and Courage to Be Fully Alive. And next week, we check in with Carl Marcy. He's written a book called Rewired, Protecting Your Brain in the Digital Age. That's next time on the Read to Lead podcast. Hope you had a great Memorial Day weekend. That's all we have time for this week. Hope to see you next time. Until then, as always, remember, leaders read and readers lead.
You need parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly.